You're listening to Stories from Montreal, a podcast to highlight the voices and work of Concordia University's undergraduate sociology and anthropology department. All of our guests have been featured authors in our academic journal of the same name, Stories from Montreal. We would like to begin by acknowledging that Concordia University is located on unseceded indigenous lands. The Kanyankehaka Nation is recognized as the custodians of the land and waters on which we gather today. Teotiake, or Montreal, is historically known as a gathering place for many First Nations. Today, it is home to a diverse population of indigenous and other peoples. We respect the continued connections with the past, present, and future in our ongoing relationships with indigenous and all peoples within the Montreal community. I am your host, Olivia, and today I will be chatting with Amanda about her paper entitled Dynamics of Spiritual Capital in the Coupling of American Evangelicalism and Media Technology. She has an honors degree in sociology, which she obtained in 2020 from Concordia with distinction, after she enrolled as a mature student. Her areas of interest include media, capitalism, and evangelical Christianity. After her first year, she was able to present a paper at an undergraduate conference in Toronto, and the paper that is currently being published in Stories from Montreal Journal is the result of her honors thesis. She has recently moved to Marina del Rey, California, and is weathering the pandemic at home with her husband. So thank you for joining us, Amanda, joining us from sunny California. Can you talk to us a little bit about your research and the findings that came out of it? So thank you so much, Olivia, for uh, having me on this podcast and giving me the opportunity to talk about my research. So essentially what I was trying to do uh, with this paper, which uh, was my thesis project for the honors program, uh, was essentially trying to figure out a sociological way Uh, of understanding this sharing or overlapping of symbols and values from different aspects of American society, uh, as I saw it. That overlapping of symbols being between, what I would say, different fields uh, in the context of my paper, uh, religion being uh, the primary one, uh, Christianity, to drill down a bit further, uh, and evangelical Christianity to to, uh, delve down even Uh, further with um, other fields of society like the political, uh, the economic, etc. This kind of came out of me looking at the cultural landscape. Um, This was kind of, this was during the last American election as well. Um, And just seeing how much evangelicals were kind of like in the media and um you know like Kanye West and Justin Bieber were very huge kind of inspirations there I actually wanted to originally write a paper or figure out a way of understanding essentially like Justin Bieber as someone that's able to utilize both secular and religious symbols without really having any consequences as far as it um comes to like his fan base etc in in what's kind of considered or thought of as a uh, irreligious or unreligious um, celebrity landscape. So my argument or the conclusion that I come to is that evangelical Protestantism, um, so like I said, what you would say, what you would see represented in in media more often or not uh, when people talk about uh, evangelicals or, or Christians, have become a primary bearer of spiritual capital in the United States 
and it has this position to the extent that it has absorbed um, the prevailing logics from fields outside of religion proper, such as the economic and communication fields in its embrace of the media technologies. Um, and in addition, there's this circular or cyclical kind of relationship as well, where the capital or position uh, evangelicism holds adds or also becomes a significant a signifier of value in applications uh, outside of the religious field as well. Yeah, so like, you know, to quote myself in my paper, uh, like where specifically evangelical forms of Protestant Christianity are embedded in a country's history, within its civil religion, and in its mass media, where both religious and secular personalities employ similar tactics to build mediated relationships, uh, which they profit off of, the lines and that separate uh, symbols of religion and secular culture are so weakened over time uh, as to become almost interchangeable. All right, thanks. Your paper was definitely interesting to read. I think a lot of us um, have witnessed through various medias like the TV or Facebook or you know other social media um, the rise of and the wider distribution of often evangelical videos, whether it be like you said from artists or from you know priests or for who, from whoever within that community. Um, and I think like you're saying, one of the really interesting points is the fact that it's not um, singular in its in its approach. So like you were saying, you know, it has an economic component. It has a very strong political component as well as being religious and cultural and social. Um, so it was definitely really interesting. Can you talk a little bit about how your program, so for you, sociology, influenced the choice of your topic? So I don't think that my program was so much of a inspiration on the topic of my uh, paper as much as I think that my program has given me the different frames to see things through and the language uh, to articulate things with and maybe the ability to to see the subject from a different scope like for instance I never like I never took any classes on religion so I I would say that my interest there was it was more personal. The theoretical framework is 100% the result of my sociological learnings. Um, the theory comes from Pierre Bourdieu's uh, concept of fields and capital, um, and it wasn't something that I had ever read uh, before my program, so definitely it inspired me there. Yeah, so I would just say that I find it like interesting personally both the ways that religion and christianity is discussed and represented in the media and how evangelicals like represent themselves uh, in relation to broader society yeah it's definitely interesting what you're saying is also the fact that sociology is very dynamic and it's not you know it's not insular it's you don't only have to when you're looking at society or sociology you don't necessarily have to look at it from one way you can sort of bring in a lot of different interests and components so that's definitely interesting um, in terms of your paper more specifically, for those who haven't read it yet, or for those, you know, who just want to listen to our discussion, your paper explains or explores a, a concept called spiritual capital. Can you define it and, you know, explain to us a little bit about what that is and its implications? So as I said earlier, the theoretical underpinnings of uh, this paper largely come from um, Pierre Bourdieu, who had a uh, a theory of of capital which is based on marx's uh, economic view of capital where wealth is put through a productive process so more is extracted um at the end than what was uh put into it so um spiritual capital is essentially a a burgeoning term that has been in 
part born out of criticism toward uh, Bourdieu's own analysis about the struggle for power and legitimacy in the field of religion, but instead uses his concept of of capital, specifically cultural capital, as a framework um, instead. And so different scholars have used it, used this term of spiritual capital in uh, in different ways. Some also refer to it as something as religious capital. For me, I like the flexibility of the term spiritual, and I use the scholar Bradford Verder's conception of spiritual capital, which is basically the same as Bourdieu's uh, cultural capital. So yeah, so going back to uh, Bourdieu, his theory of capital takes Marx's idea and applies it to other social realms, out- outlining three primary types, being the economic form of capital, which is closest to to Marx, the social form of capital, which would be like one's interpersonal uh, connections, pedigree, um, that kind of stuff, and the cultural form of capital, which is more about knowledge and skills and yeah, the things that you know. Cultural capital is itself broken down into, into three areas or three states rather. So like there's the embodied state, which would be like beliefs and values which have become internalized and naturalized. The objectified state comprised of cultural goods. So, you know, every like everything from like pictures and books and dictionaries to Instagram accounts, TV, etc. And that's a part of my paper as well. And then there's also the institutionalized state, which obviously is institutions. So that would be churches or, or mosques or that kind of thing. So these three forms of capital all work directly or indirectly to locate one's status within the social terrain of power, and and they also kind of either buttress or hold each other up. So yeah, so once again, the um, concept of spiritual capital that I use coming from Bradford Verder is like, like follows the same kind of dates. And of course, then the idea is that you know, whoever has the most capitals, the most spiritual capital within the the field of religion is the primary bearer of that capital. And obviously they kind of get to set the table um, a little bit more, um, you know, just as we see, obviously, with the economic form of capital, you know, who has the most money, unfortunately, in our in our world tends to exert uh, more effect and more force on other spheres of society and um like both its own its own sphere of say business but also politics religion and other things as well okay thank you for clarifying that and and giving us a little bit more of a definition and an explanation on page one of your paper you discuss how you know evangelical protestantism has become the bearer of spiritual capital in the u.s and that's quoted directly. Can you please just explain that a little bit? Like how how has it become the primary bearer and why, if you can? So what you just quoted is my thesis argument. So it's the big question. It's a it's a big one to try and unpack in the context of just this interview. I definitely recommend people reading the paper for themselves to get everything, but I'll try to unpack a, a bit here. As I said in response to the first question, uh, evangelicalism has become a primary bearer of spiritual capital in the United States to the extent that it has absorbed prevailing logics from fields outside of religion proper as it pertains to communication and economics in its embrace of media technologies. 
I talk about the long and intertwined history of evangelicalism and media in the United States and how the logics and tactics that each uh, field employs and learns and absorbs from the other. And so, like, while the, I think there is a certain degree of contestation that can be argued about evangelicalism over, say, another Christian denomination, evangelicals in particular have had a long history of utilizing and embracing technology media. And they also utilize a diffuse enough set of both religious and non-religious symbols that essentially make them super recognizable. So not all, obviously, but a lot of the big imagery and symbols that they use are going to be familiar and fairly comfortable with other Christian denominations. And because of the long history that Christianity has had in the United States, it's going to be viewed as kind of normal a little bit for people that they themselves maybe don't consider themselves super religious um, or whatever. There are, there are things that they've, you know, they've read in the Constitution. To this point, I talk about Robert Bella's uh, civic religion uh, in my paper, which kind of is, is one of these points as well. So, yeah, just because that it's, it's its use of media, its history, and the way that it's been able to use other logics, like I talk about capitalism as well, that have catapulted or that prop it up to the position of the primary bearer of spiritual capital in the United States. And in addition, I, I also just wanted to note, I think it's important to say um, that, you know, in this paper, in our conversation here, we're talking a lot about religion and in, you know, and Christianity in in context of these other facets of of life there's nothing in my paper that is meant to be construed as a value judgment on a on on a denomination or faith at large or the or individuals who you know who adhere to those faiths to continue on with um you know the example of Bieber and uh and Kanye West you know, there's no way that I can sociologically make a judgment about whether they're devout or sincere or good or bad or any of the things when it when it comes to their their faith. Um, it's not about that. It's just about the 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 mechanisms which uh, underpin the fact that they are able to share their faith and mix it with other aspects of society and and not necessarily see major consequences uh, in light of a secular society or secular society, however you see it. What you're saying was very interesting is in, you know, your focus and your, your exploration of the, the medium that which, through which, you know, it, it's propagated and how it's been spread is really interesting. And I definitely invite people to, to know, read your paper and, and, and explore that a bit further and in more details, because obviously we don't have as much time as we wish we did to discuss this. Um, and like you said, it is an extremely broad subject with so many different opinions and ideas about it. And, you know, and this is just one small, like morsel of that, right? So in your, in your paper, you use a word that I think is important to define, you know, and, and to deepen the understanding is you use the word a religious. Can you just define that and explain what you mean by that? 
So the word a-religious means not being influenced or concerned with uh, the religious. And so I do use this term uh, a-religious a few times in my paper. And I use it when I'm discussing the relationship of something religious to something else where I don't think saying that it's specifically not religious or irreligious feels quite right. Because part of the revelation uh, of my paper is that when there's such an overlap between symbols across different fields. So, you know, an Instagram account being used by a person who has made being religious a very big part of their their persona, who they are, that it's a lot harder to say something that is religious or something is not religious when there is this kind of overlap. So uh, a religious felt uh, like a better word to use to describe something that is not in of itself religious but would still could potentially have uh, a capacity for religiosity depending on how it's uh, if on how it's wielded if that makes sense definitely and i know you touched about it uh, briefly previously but i was just wondering you know in your in your paper you discuss the role of the media and why it's such an important medium Can you just explain, you know, why it is so important and why it is so effective? So I broadly discuss the role of various types of mass media and social media in my thesis as a central mechanism, which has helped once again catapult the reach of evangelicals as a way of both mission and also as a to create a form of notoriety. The reach of media as it has evolved and the reach of evangelicals, in my mind, follow a very similar trajectory. I mean, when I picture it in my head, it's almost like a, you know, a a graph with two overlapping lines. Now, that's once again, that's in my head. That isn't something that I've seen. But as mentioned, there's already a long history of intertwinedness between evangelicism and its command of media technologies. And I give examples of this in my paper, demonstrating this from the time of the the advent of radio, um, all the way along uh, media's technological evolution and expansion into, you know, TV and the popular social media apps of today. I think it's also worth noting that there's whole forms of ministry, namely televangelism and uh, and even I would say the modern prosperity gospel, which exists in tandem with media technology and a media technology that to a large extent exists to get us to buy things, you know, you know, watching these programs, whether that be, you know, on YouTube, on TV, especially more traditionally, and it being broken up with ads. I don't know, that's just something like interesting to to think of when you're thinking of viewing church through a through a TV program. In addition, I think it's interesting in thinking about the kinds of relationships that, you know, faith leaders, influencers, celebrities have with their audiences based on the medium used to reach them and the way that it augments that leader follower relationship. In my paper, I discuss an idea described by uh, David Dykema who builds on Max Weber's description on different forms of charisma, pure and routinized, and comes up with something that he calls pseudo-charisma to describe the relationships specifically that exist through television. And I would say to some degree social media as well, like Instagram or TikTok. I mean, he doesn't, this, his paper was created before those things. 
But, you know, when it comes to TV and about pseudo-charisma, he says it combines the qualities of Weber's pure and routinized charisma with the distinct elements of the non-present nature of the mediated relationship and its non-reflexive nature, as well as the decontextualization nature um, of, of the medium, you know, that you're watching or having this relationship outside of you know, uh, the same temporal, spatial dimension, I guess, you know, that you're, you're, you know, it's recorded at a different time than you may be viewing it. So yeah, media relationships, the point that he said makes is that like, while they're still social, they don't have the same social quality that um, non-mediated relationships have. So he describes this as being parasocial because that the quality and dimensions are different. You know, with the exception of live events, it's, you know, TV and even, you know, what you see on, say, TikToks and Instagram and whatever other forms of social media. They're generally scripted, rehearsed, edited to be just right. And, you know, once again, you're broke. it's broken up by ads or in, interplayed with different ads or promotional content, I guess you could say. And as it comes to our phones and computers, increasingly um, what we see is targeted and curated to us based on our underlying desires and beliefs. So it becomes also a more hyper-individualized experience as compared to traditional congregational church services, which were much more locally rooted and community-driven. However, there's also a flip side, a point that I try to make, which is also really important in my paper, is that also the media and so-called secular or a-religious celebrities and politicians or other media figures, like, draw upon and utilize the religious faith symbols congruent with evangelicism in ways that increase their own platform and or wealth. In my paper, I touch on this, how this was the case even in the 19th century where individuals would utilize the relational tactics employed by itinerant evangelical preacher Charles Finney, which he, you know, he crafted specifically to form these kind of specific bonds with those that would come to see him preach to be come across as sincere. Um, those were then utilized by other, you know, by politicians or whatever to, you know, create that same sort of sense of relationship. So as much as evangelicism has expanded itself based on its embrace of media, the point is that so too the embrace and utilization of evangelical symbols and rhetoric can be wielded to great advantage by those outside of the field of religion proper, including media personalities. Yeah, definitely. I think media is media is is a beast of its own, and like you're saying, it has like right different qualities, plus and minus. It increases individuality. Just could be a good thing, but it can also be a negative thing. Um, it used to be such more of a closed community, like you were saying, a closed community affair where you know you would go to your local church, and then you know it would be that's how you had contact. And now, like you're saying, it's instant, twenty four seven, and it's also presented in like a perfect way, right? Like as you were saying, is you can take out fifty takes if you want before you get exactly what you want and the message you want to get out. And it's interesting. It, ha- it plays a huge role, and it, it ha- increasingly so. So I have one last question for you slash, you know, question development is, well, I think it's important to showcase students' work, you know, um, in your case, your honors thesis. I think one of the important things to also discuss is the student. And I think it's important for other students to hear 
students' stories so that they know that, you know, even though there is a lot of students at university, a lot of us feel a little bit alone or isolated and that your story is, you know, has been lived by somebody else and somebody else understands you. Um, and we were talking earlier and you told me, you know, that you came to university as, as a mature student um, after taking some time off after high school and not going directly to university. So you moved to Montreal and then after moving to Montreal, after a year or so, you applied to university. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about how that was for you. You know, did it present any particular challenges? How did it feel, you know, coming to a university as a mature student? Um, and I know you had told me sort of shifts the way you think a little bit about things compared to, let's say, younger students. So I was just wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, so as you were saying, I came to Concordia, I think around nine years, probably after my last post-secondary experience. And I mean, I had done essentially two certificates previously. So and at smaller schools or in programs where I was with like a small cohort of people all doing the same classes, more or less. So in some ways, I think coming to Concordia... I maybe had the same, you know, first time in a big university kind of jitters that um, other people may have experienced. A little bit like unsure and and insecure, um, all those kind of things. But I think also just being older maybe and also just like living off campus, already kind of having a, a life. I mean, I was also working part-time at my at the job that I was doing before uh, I came to school during my education. So where we're doing things like a lot of extracurricular or social activities may be a bit more important along with studies when you're like younger and you're, you know, trying to go on to a master's or um, go on to another school. Uh, I wasn't really concerned with that. I was just concerned with hopefully being able to to do okay at my studies. Um, I think that, I mean, for me coming back to school as a mature student and I think being in the program itself and just having that the headspace to maybe to read a bit more and not be distracted as much by other things for me was was really encouraging um just because I had previously always kind of been like a like a C student I would say like when I was like in high school my one college experience was more vocational so um grades were not maybe I mean they were obviously important but there was like other aspects that were maybe a bit more important but I mean I I, like I said this paper was part of my honors I was able to really get my GPA high and that was like a really big self-esteem boost for for me as someone who just like never really thought of themselves as having that kind of academic potential or or that kind of smart so I'm not sure if I would have reached that potential if maybe just with my own personality. This isn't, I'm not trying to be like, I'm not ageist or anything like that. But then I would have maybe if when I was younger and, you know, maybe a bit more socially concerned in my own life. I also had the experience where, like you said, I came to Montreal with somewhat of a goal of coming to Concordia in my mind, but that was... A little bit distant off like I worked for uh, a year year and a half before I started school and part of that was actually intentional in that 
I knew that if I worked and became a Quebec citizen before applying, that tuition would be significantly cheaper for me. And that was also very, very important. So if you're listening and you're thinking about that, if saving that money is is worth it to you, I, on one hand, I would recommend it if you can get the job. I mean, it's, it was a lot of hard work. It was hard. I think that first little while being in Quebec as a not native French speaker, um, and you like when you're doing the application process, you really have to really really prove that you've been like living and spending money and working in Quebec to to get that rate. But uh, in the end, it was it was worth it for me. I'm I'm really glad I did the degree. I'm really happy I did sociology. I'm currently in Marina Del Rey. I'm not working in the field partially because I'm here on a disposal visa, and so I actually can't work. But the degree has opened my eyes to so many different ways about thinking about things and and contemplating social life and inequality and yeah it's truly transformed i think the way i the way i think about things and and for the better all right well thank you for letting us know and talking a little bit about yourself and thank you for joining us today and explaining you know delving deeper into your paper Once again, just thank you so much for having me um, on this podcast, Olivia, and thanks to everyone who's been working so hard to put this out there, as well as just the Stories from Montreal publication. If people were interested in the little bit that I was able to share today, I hope that they do read it. It's it's a really great feeling after working so hard on on something to know that it has an opportunity for a variety of people to, to read it. And uh, yeah. Thank you so much. Have a good day. To read Amanda's or any of our other featured authors' works, be sure to check out Sasu's Facebook page or Instagram for more information. Stories from Montreal was produced with support from the Concordia Student Union, the Sociology and Anthropology Student Union, and CJLO Radio Station. It was hosted by me, Olivia, and edited by Marie Figuerero. Our sound design is by Malte Leander and artwork by Ali Brown. You can catch our show on the CJLO Airways at cjlo.com or on their channel 1690am every Wednesday at 4pm. You can also listen to us anywhere you like to stream podcasts. Thank you so much for listening and until next time.